0: believe I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more this is superstitious logic it's pure ideology you know this ecological bullshit like uh
1: okay
2: uh, so welcome to the end of the world <laughs> yeah hello and welcome to the end of the world uh, this is Anthropocene's a uh, Podcast where we examine culture from the perspective of a dying planet. I guess is how I would how I yeah, would kind of phrase yeah, yeah. that. Um,
1: specifically, specifically films. I guess through yeah. through films.
2: Yeah, um, we'll see. Maybe we'll branch out in other things later on. But for now, we're just going to worry about the the moving pictures. So uh, we'll start off with just who we are and the voice you're hearing now. I am uh, Matt Spencer. Um, I've been drawn to environmental causes and climate change, adjacent things for a long time, just being a, uh, graduate student in English, which was a bad decision for a number of reasons, but also a good decision for, uh, for, uh, another number of reasons. One of them being that it introduced me to things like environmental criticism and the kinds of thinkers that we're going to be talking about, uh, on the show. And you are. I'm Will
1: Underland. I am, uh... Also in the English world, I uh, have a master's in English lit. Similarly to Matt, just sort of naturally drawn to these, uh, to environmental issues. Um, I think we we kind of, maybe not met, but maybe we did meet in a class called post-colonial eco-criticism. Um, so we're both um, drawn to... The sort of darker side of the study of literature, or another way of saying that would might might be the uh, political uh, side of studying literature. So, uh, yeah, we're we're both uh, concerned. Yes, Uh, to say the least. And the only thing to to English. Major or English? What are we? I'm not, we're not English majors. Uh, professionals, young English, English professionals, English
2: professionals <laughs> can do about anything is to make a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that, <that's, laughs> it kind of boils down to that. How do we fix it? Well, let's podcast about mm-hmm. it. Uh, see what happens. See what comes of it. Um, so that is what we've decided to do because we found we would be having these conversations about these things, and we thought. Well, why not record it? See yeah. what other people think about it. See if maybe we can get other people talking about things. I think sure. that's one of the, the best things we can do given the situation. Um, so I guess we can sort of transition to talking about what that situation is. Um, kind of what is the point of all this? What are we doing here? And uh, what I kind of did in thinking about recording this was do what any good young professional <laughs> academic would do and uh, write kind of a mission statement, which is very cheesy, but uh, I did it anyway. And this is this is what I came up with. So uh, when it comes to the undeniable and unavoidable truth of climate change, something I think we can both agree on that everyone should agree on, uh, cultural reactions and or inactions matter. Those things are important. Uh, with this in mind, We examine cultural artifacts, films, as emblematic of how the United States specifically is coping with or completely ignoring uh, future climate catastrophes. And uh, sort of a corollary to that is that we're going to be looking at it from this kind of cultural kind of close reading perspective, if you want to put it that way. So the idea is not that, you know, we don't do science, but we believe science. Right. So so
1: maybe we should, uh, for the people not in the English world, maybe we should maybe explain the sort of underpinnings of close reading, right? It's, uh, I mean, it's, sound, it's sort of self-evident, but it's also really put it in simple terms is we're we're trying to understand the ideologies that inform the decisions of what we see uh in in large productions that are disseminated globally yeah. um, and sometimes we'll look at more I think we'll look at more independent film but even I mean an American independent film is <laughs> it's, it's still available I mean especially now it's available um so taking I, I think one way to understand close reading though is just taking what you see on on screen as, um, as an intentional choice, understanding um, setting and dialogue and, and everything as integral to the drama and the total uh, message conveyed by any given work of art uh, or entertainment, as the case may be.
2: Yeah, but not not going overboard with it, doing it in, in good faith, right? So, you know, trying not being that person that sees things that aren't there, right? Right. Not making kind of wild, willy-nilly connections. Right, we don't
1: want to be men with hammers uh, seeing everything as nails.
2: Yeah, the uh, Billy Collins poem about strapping a poem to a chair and beating it yes. with a hose to get yes. its meaning out—that um, kind of thing. So uh, the
1: the title we said earlier was "Anthropocene," and that may be a good place to sort of explain more of our mission statement. Of that was a that was a pun <laughs> on the word "anthropocene" um, that I used as a title for a paper I wrote on the movie Interstellar. And I I think I think that title works just because um, that's what we're doing here is the uh, the overlap between man's or human's um, grasp on the earth and how that is reflected through film.
2: So respect the pun. (laughs) yes Um, and just talking about the Anthropocene um, I'm gonna try not to to read too much um, on the podcast in general but there is something that is worth mentioning um, from this book The Shock of the Anthropocene by Christophe Bagnuil and Jean-Baptiste Friseau Uh, probably butchered those because I'm not very good at French pronunciation Um, But from the very first page of the preface, they write, we already live in the Anthropocene, so let us get used to this ugly word and the reality that it names. It is our epoch and our condition. This geological epoch is the product of the last few hundred years of our history. The Anthropocene is the sign of our power, but also of our impotence. And there's more to it, but I'll kind of leave it at that. But just this idea that it's the sign of our power and also of our impotence, and uh, this idea that we're... What kind of boggles my mind about deniers uh, and, and denialism in general is that we're super happy and willing to be anthropocentric in everything, um, except this. It seems right. Yes. Um, and it, it, that's what's always sort of driven me crazy about it is um, so much of the world. You know, we we, we talk about the state parks sometimes and how they're these constructed. Or not state parks, national parks; these constructed areas that are "quote unquote" nature, right? And so you see them as such, right? And it's um, a
1: ratification to destroy everything outside of it. It, yeah. like, it. it just it ratifies all the destruction that was going to happen anyway.
2: Uh, yeah. That's okay now because we have this oasis, basically, right? right? Um, so that's you know one major way that we see human beings literally sculpting the natural world. And, and changing it and to sort of make remake it in their own image in a way. Yes. Um, but when it comes to you know rising CO two levels or whatever it could be, a lot of people think, oh, it's it's just a cycle, or it's God's will, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. Right.
1: Um, and that's uh, that's a good transition. Uh, I like that you're mentioning like practical things. Like uh, national parks is a great example of like a very practical. Human endeavor. Uh, one one question I think we want to explore with this project is why why is the Anthropocene so hard to grasp not not the concept like we just you just explained Matt but the uh, practical realities that make it true. Um, I think in, in religious terms, uh, the lineage of the idea of dominion. I think in philosophical terms, the lineage of rationalism. Both dominion and rationalism imply this radical distinction between human beings and nature. Dominion, in obvious ways, you know, humans are divine creations given control over the earth. The earth functions as, you know, a mere setting for the human drama to unfold. Um, Rationalism. In, in less obvious ways it's like the in, like in psychological terms the subject object dualism of just like basic like object relation psychology uh, is essentially dominion without divinity it's the same kind of us and them uh, dualism but it's just kind of crazy how can we conceive of a self apart from the constant of nature if nature is a constant like there's never been a human being that existed apart from the earth, so how how can we have this psychological and philosophical understanding of what a self is distinct from the earth? Um, it, it's like it's like defining a fish with no reference to water, you know. Uh, a much I think I think a much more nuanced understanding and and. Let me be clear here. I will be the guy always making this about psychology and religion. Like, (laughs) I I really think that, like, uh, especially, like, depth psychology is, like, very much under... uh, It's, like, not regarded highly enough. It has been screaming for a hundred years that the human psyche is the biggest danger To the planet before climate change was a thing, you know. Especially if you read like the spiritual problem of modern man by Carl Jung, it's like it's all there, and and not there's no reference to environmentalism, there's no jargon, but it's like the danger of of humanity to the world is there. Uh, So, so I think a much more nuanced understanding of what of what we call a human self is in relationship. Uh, to nature is required, uh, I think the result of this lack of nuance is the Anthropocene. Um, in short, I think we can't grasp the Anthropocene because we are in it, and it is ingrained in the very means by which we comprehend the world, at least in America, namely through Christianity and Enlightenment-based philosophy, and I think one of uh, another major thing we want to do here is call into question uh, the um, tenets of Enlightenment-based philosophy, rationalism, um, and of course, um, especially if we're going to get into the movie First Reformed uh, at some point, the legacy of of uh, Christian thought on the environment
2: i'm good up the enlightenment because i feel like that's when you're when you're taught about the enlightenment in middle school or high school or whatever you're always taught about it as being you know that's that's when all of the good thoughts happened right that's when all of the good thinking and whereas once we were blind now we see yeah Yeah, even though you know it's still a bunch of uh, europeans a lot of them you know, slave owners or slave owner adjacent writing about, you know, the, the individual or the universal rights of man, right? Um, <laughs> right. So yeah. it's sort of, not that there weren't, you know, good concepts coming out of there, of course, but it bears repeating that we have to reevaluate these things. We can't rely on thinking from the 1700s through, you know, the 21st century. Sure. Um... And or at the, least not that thinking. For the yeah, at least not that thinking. Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about dominion, uh, which I think is important. and a, a sort of related concept that I think is interesting um, is this idea of, of stewardship. That's sort of seen as being the positive right to be a steward of nature. Right. To properly manage nature, which again brings it back to this kind of anthropocentric idea that human beings must... Wrangle nature in and sort of be the protectors of it, um, which is itself problematic in a lot of ways. Um, but the fact that that is often seen as being sort of the right side of it as opposed to the wrong side, which would be absolute dominion, you know, go forth and, you know, to eat two of every animal. Right, right, right. <laughs>
1: why, why dominion registers in people's minds as the right to destroy. Does not make sense. It's like, oh, yeah. hey, I got you this puppy. It's yours. You have dominion over it. Now I'm gonna kick it down the stairs. Like that. Yeah. I mean, the the it's a proposition that does not logically follow. Um,
2: yeah, and just the very idea. And this is, you know, maybe getting too far off. And in, in more. Well, I mean, political thinking is going to necessarily going to have to be a part of what we're talking about because that's where I think the solutions would ultimately have to. Occur, maybe not come from, but they'd have to occur through political means. I think things like the Green New Deal. Um, uh, but I, lo- I love
1: just to sidetrack for a second. I love how much shit a Cortez is getting <laughs> being, uh, from from the left. Yeah, from everyone. Did you see the uh, the? Uh, and to clarify, that was sarcastic. I I don't love it. I think I think it's funny that. Or not funny, I think it's ironic that the so-called left is... Isn't it ironic? (laughs) It is. The so-called left is criticizing uh, someone for being so
2: preposterous in proposing uh, actual... But the money. Where will the money come from? Have you seen the Feinstein video? Where she, uh... No. The little kids coming to her office, that part of the, uh... Sunrise Movement, which is a, a kids' movement, to try to get policy around climate change going, go to her office to demonstrate. And they're there with, like, chaperones and stuff. And she, this little girl, basically says, I don't want to die in a future hellscape. Like, you know, not in those words. And uh, Feinstein just looks at her and is like, well, that's too bad. and And went off and was talking about, you know, I won my election with a... 1,000 vote plurality or a million vote plurality or whatever. Just basically saying I'm the one that's won the election so you have to listen to me. I'm right. the old one here. Right. I have the seniority. Um, yeah,
1: because if 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 enough people believe something, it is true.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, but what I was bringing up before with the, the political stuff is uh, talking about this idea of, of private property, which, uh, like I was saying, if we're going to get into some deep kind of marxian thing then then maybe that's not where we want to be um but that's kind of where this idea of dominion takes hold in our world i think is i own you know i went and bought however many acres i'll do with it as i damn well please um and corporations which are people as we know (laughs) doing as they please with the environment or the big chunks of the environment that they buy up and the u.s government which you know going back to national parks for a second saying well maybe we can." lease out some of this land to you know have it fracked or drilled or whatever whatever that may be and we were talking about uh, the book Wilderness in the American
1: Imagination Nash uh, and I I just started reading it and he makes that very point basically uh, the religious idea of dominion is directly uh, directly leads to the idea of owning land, private private property um we are so connected to this idea or so influenced by the idea of dominion that we come to think that ownership you know sort of means something it's like a an innate right
2: yeah uh, and there's also the, this kind of other side of it which is showing that you know if you're you know left right or center it doesn't really matter everyone is capable of having negative opinions in this, you know, wouldn't you know what I just happen to have wilderness in the American well, imagination right here. By the way, um, we're
1: surrounded by yeah books about the dying planet right now.
2: Yeah, this is this is <laughs> where I want to die. <laughs> <laughs> yep. bury me here. Yeah, um, you know, two chains bury him at the Gucci store. <laughs> you bury me at the, the used bookstore. Yeah, um, but not the grumpy book. pen. Like that. hold now.
1: Let me just. I'm going to say this, and I hope this reaches the right ears. Fuck the grumpy
2: book peddler In Murfreesboro, Tennessee Yep, yep Second <laughs> uh, But he's talking about the, the romantics And you know the romantics were going off And seeing the the splendor of nature And the sublime of nature And all mm-hmm. of that and he, uh, So Roderick Nash writes Wilderness appealed to those bored or disgusted with man and his works it not only offered an escape from society, but also was an ideal stage for the romantic individual to exercise the cult that he frequently made of his own soul. The solitude and total freedom of the wilderness created a perfect setting for either melancholy or exaltation. So even within this kind of romantic um, you know, compulsion, you have this idea that nature is this vacuum that's there to be filled with the soul of man or whatever it may be
1: there's also and Nash talks about this uh, there's also a sort of grass is always greener thing if you live in an immaculate if you if you live in a civilized uh, you know urban area you want wilderness and if you live in wilderness you cannot do anything but long to escape from it into civilization um and and I think there's some uh, some connections there with romanticism Uh, Curtis White who's another guy I'll bring up a lot talks about a lot about romanticism and he um, he has a lot of good things to say about it uh, especially in its sort of uh, in its antagonism to the enlightenment and he he in several of his books makes the case that the romantics are not don't actually, you know, they're they're not they're not stating some sort of like literal case for nature. They're not like, you know, their poetic language is not not meant to be taken literally and that they are offering a counter to The sort of Enlightenment-based way of relating to nature, and they sort of understand that this is a story they're telling. They they don't, whereas whereas the Enlightenment doesn't, and, and we might as well just call it like scientific thinking doesn't understand that science is, in its worst form, a story that is being told. You know, a certain number of assumptions being. Being made and then proceeding rationally from there, but it's still one of many stories to be, uh, you know, one of many lenses through which to understand the world. Uh, But yeah, I'm glad you. Romanticism is probably a thing that's
2: going to come up again and again. Um, How it is is not the answer (laughs) in in most cases,
1: right? Uh, And and another thing that will come up specifically related to that I think is probably transcendentalism uh, there's no way to talk about American fiction without, without the legacy of Emerson and uh, Thoreau and Whitman um, and I'll probably have some bad things to say about that because to me Jency and I were talking about just the other night how um, it's, it's just it, it lives on abstraction Emerson, especially just lives on abstraction. Uh, I, and I like Thoreau. I especially like uh, civil disobedience
2: but That's that's kind of its own. Well, I mean it's related, but Kind of a separate thing it feels more Grounded I don't know if you heard of this book that came out uh, About a year year and a half ago, and I can't even remember the title of it, but it was a nonfiction account of this guy who had Kind of gone off and lived in the woods for years and years and years and had never been sort of seen but he was sneaking in to this summer camp and stealing food and supplies every so often and newspapers so he could kind of see what was going on in the world and eventually he gets arrested they have to set booby traps to catch this guy like he's living in the woods he's not lighting a fire because he doesn't want to get caught so he's in the you know brutal cold of winter and somehow surviving and they catch him and they arrest him and so This author is like, I have to interview this guy. This is fascinating. And he, the guy had been stealing books from the summer camp, and one of them was he had stolen a book of Thoreau's essays, or maybe he had just stolen uh, Walden. And the guy said, well, you should really like Walden. He's like, no, this is bullshit. Like, I've never – I hate this guy. He knows nothing about the wilderness. (laughs) Um, So I just always thought that was kind of funny. Like, this guy guy kind of gets it too. It's also, though, because you hear that a
1: lot. People want to, like – people want to hate on Thoreau but what they're really hating on is like he didn't live up because they what they read Walden they're like he didn't live up to the bullshit that you'd heard about Walden <laughs> you, you know what <laughs> I'm saying true. people think it's like he was like oh I'm going to go live in the middle of nowhere and survive on nothing it's like that that was never his stated intention and of course he didn't do that you know he had a, it was like neighbors with Emerson apparently um, or got visits from him or whatever but it's more about and this is a theme I think that's emerging here is that wilderness and, and reverence for nature is largely a result or a reaction to um, it's an aversion to the human made built world that is so fucking ugly that, that we we just, we, we ask ourselves, what is other to this? Because whatever that is, that's what I want. And the only thing available is wilderness. But of course, wilderness has its own ugliness. And, you know, it's uh, tooth and claw and everything. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's almost like we don't, you get the idea that some writers don't actually love Nature, in and of itself, what they what they actually do is they hate a particular culture uh, or a particular iteration
2: of civilization. And what they hate, I'll I'll tell you exactly what they hate because I saw a tweet that illustrated it the other day. It was was (laughs) so you know, yeah, I know for sure. It it was a just a picture of just imagine a, a highway exit. With gas stations and like maybe a hotel, like imagine that in your head, and you know exactly what that looks like, right? Mm. It was a picture of just a random exit. You could have told me that it's a mile from here, and I've driven past it a million times, mm-hmm. and I would not have known. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's kind of the American landscape, if yeah. you think about it. Yeah, there's a great TED
1: Talk by uh, James Howard Kunstler, the critic, um, social critic. Called, I can't even remember what it's called, but it was. It's based on a lot of his ideas in his book, The Geography of Nowhere, which uh, was spawned from an article he wrote called "Why America Is So Fucking Ugly," and he is just like, just merciless, uh, and he's he's funny, but he's don't get me wrong. There's some problems with that TED talk. He. Uh, he's traditional too traditional in some ways but yeah that's that's something that's going to come up I think again too is uh, how much do we revere nature or how much do we just fucking hate our ugly ass suburbs and and cities and
2: it, it, like something, it's something I'm gonna emphasize constantly, and it's you know, I've in my own kind of research, shit that I do. I, I come back to this idea, idea all the time. It's just the simple concept of it doesn't have to be this way, right? Like it, that's that's what's kind of so heartbreaking and infuriating about it is all these issues doesn't have to be that way necessarily. Right. Like it, there are alternatives. It's just they're rarely explored for you know numerous reasons they're kind of shut off from those possibilities um, yeah
1: I this is a little bit sidetracked I think but my I, I think about that all the time that's a that's, an, that's a very important idea um, when I think of that the phrase that comes to my mind it's like a personal sort of philosophy is the phrase rearrange the chairs and I'll tell you why when I was an undergrad I was in the philosophy building What's that building called at MTSU? No, I didn't even know there was one. Uh, I
2: assumed they had torn it down anyway, years ago. Um,
1: and people would wait in the lobby every day before class, and there were chairs lined up against the wall. And for most of the semester, people would—they were all uh, chairs were all facing the same way, looking out to the lobby. People would sit quietly, and. You know look at their phones or you know read or whatever but it was always very quiet and it was fine but one day someone we came in and someone had put half the chairs facing the other half of the chair so there were chairs against the wall and then there were chairs facing the people uh, facing those chairs and so it was like conducive to conversation and be just because someone rearranged these chairs People started talking, and this is how, you know, it's always good to have, like, friends in class. You know, you get phone numbers, and if you forget something, blah, 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 if you miss a day. And so this is how that happened. Um, This is how people started becoming friends in this class, is that someone arbitrarily, probably wasn't even anyone in the class. It's probably someone that morning, for whatever reason, had arbitrarily moved these chairs and then... Our relationships changed because of the fucking furniture was different. You know what I'm saying?
2: I like to imagine it's like a quantum leap scenario. There's a dude that like came back from the future. And he's like, all I people have, to have to meet. All I have. And to he's do. watching from like around the corner as right. you're making conversation. And all he like, has to do is mission take some accomplished. accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as long as we're talking about like personal um, mottos, mine is always. And you know, this is if if you're deep in academic stuff, this is probably kind of cliche. But this uh, idea from from Antonio Gramsci that I picked up from Stuart Hall, which was this Jamaican cultural critic guy, is uh, having pessimism of the intellect but optimism of the spirit. Which is, you know, it's I think it goes beyond just saying be realistic. It's more, you know, be willing to try to affect change when possible or to sort of deconstruct things that need to be deconstructed. You know, not taking those things that are... Uh, you know, all these things that go without saying. Well, nothing really goes without saying. You should yeah. just say the damn thing. Then <laughs> we can yeah, yeah. talk about it. Um, we are responsible
1: for our world. Yeah. Like, it is a result. It is not a state of nature. Or cu- culture is not a state of nature. And we can get into, like... At some point, I'm sure we'll get into, like, naturalism. And, and it's sort of marriage with capitalism and and it ratifying that very idea of culture as an extension of nature. Uh, Of course, to some degree it is, but not... Anyway, we'll get into that.
2: I wanted to uh, sort of go back, going back to this idea, this uh, discussion about the the Anthropocene, Anthropocene, I'm going to say it a few different ways probably, Um, and there are a couple of... uh, this pair of ideas that I think are important to talk about and you've already touched on them a little bit uh, a few minutes ago um, but the idea w- what I call them is the idea of legibility and the idea of immediacy so um, immediacy is is sort of easy enough to understand and this is what Rob Nixon who we're both big fans of talks about in his book Slow Violence is a problem with the problem with slow violence which he talks about as like pollution and these different environmental factors that are having these negative effects that are drawn out over long periods of time. The problem is that they are drawn out over long periods of time. And especially now, we live in this culture that's so obsessed with the immediate and what's happening today. That's why the news cycle lasts 30 minutes, it seems. Um, So we don't really have the patience a lot of times to look at these longer trends, right? And so climate change is a longer trend. It's unfolding over the course of hundreds of years, um, the, you know, the worst ramifications of what we're doing now won't be seen for, you know, I don't have the calculations, yeah, but a long time. Long, yeah. Um, not with,
1: not necessarily within our lifetimes, depending on, you know, what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. Um, which is why it's so heartbreaking to see people, to see kids saying, you know, stop shitting on my future. Right. And, uh, it, uh you know, on, I was in the car today and on NPR, they were talking about how, um, I want to say it's Elizabeth Warren, I forget, was um, making it a part of her platform to provide more childcare in the United States to make having a child more um, financially bearable, for one, but also making it easier for, you know, working mothers to navigate. And what I immediately said at, at the end of the story was, well, you know, climate policy is childcare. Like, <laughs> that's very hard. That's, that's what we're doing, is trying to ensure that there's some kind of... Future world to live in, right? You know, humans are adaptable. We can live in the most godforsaken conditions, but right. um, you know, I just think that's an untenable attitude to have to say that. Well, we'll we'll deal with it when we get there. Right. Um, and then this idea of legibility. And this is something I, I'm thinking about because you know, writing my dissertation about this nationalism thing, but uh, a lot of scholars in national nationalism studies or the history of the nation, or whatever you want to call it, talk about this idea that the reason the nation caught on as the organizing principle, the way that, you know, these territories are organized, is because it made them legible specifically to whatever, you know, hegemonic power was controlling them, right? So if it's the king, the king doesn't know a whole lot about his citizens because he, has, he doesn't have information on them, he doesn't know where they live, what they're doing, he knows they're there, uh, maybe he knows they're there, uh, but he doesn't have the information So we have things like You know the census Or think about how many things You have to register for um, You know Willingly or not Right As soon as you're born There's your social security card right. You're right. being tracked more Your Amazon Prime account yeah, yeah Here's your barcode tattoo On your ass <laughs> So we know where you are At all times right. um, So it, My point is The nation made All those things Kind of legible It kind of helped us see what was kind of unseeable something that was too big to observe and, and I think um, that probably uh, at some point goes back to Dominion and, and
1: this idea of own ownership of property and then control of everything within that property and oh these lines on the map are real so now and I think
2: gotta, ownership and knowledge are kind of hand in hand because having knowledge of what you own right um, which is not always the case. I'm sure the king didn't know, had never been to, like, every acre of his territory or whatever. Um, yeah. But having dominion over something, you you want to feel like you have some sort of knowledge of its constituent parts, right? So a problem with things like climate change is they happen on such a scale that it's hard to it's hard to see them, right? It's hard to sort of point at a specific thing and say, this is the effect of climate change, right? And you can you can sort of do it. I mean, that's again what makes it so frustrating is we can look at rising temperatures or the fact that we haven't had a single day of snow in Tennessee this year or right. really, you know the, this past winter.
1: And you can and you can make those comments about trends, but then you get you see it you see it um, you see it on both sides of the spectrum. You see Donald Trump saying, "Oh, it's hot out here." Um, where's your global warming whatever he said, it's snow today it's we're snow global today global warming's not real but then on the other side of that you see uh some people on the left saying it's freezing out here climate change is real you know and it's like you you can't be that specific because we're not talking about specifics we're not uh uh, yet we i think we will be
2: you know in yeah. in the future well in a lot of places they already are right there's a great um before we started recording i was talking about chapo trap house <laughs> and in their book they have this line that i that stuck with me talking about climate change and it said the apocalypse is already here you just don't live there yet right so that, it,
1: that uh that's a great thought um I want to transition with that thought okay. to uh, somebody. I don't know if we've mentioned him yet, but we will mention him a lot uh, Amitav Ghosh, who we're going to have mostly uh, great things to say about. But one thing I was thinking about, I watched a, a, a talk of his the other night. He implies that in the future, uh, you know, and, and I think uh, Volman. We were just talking about William T. Vollmann's "No Immediate Danger" uh, carbon ideologies. Also implies that in the future, people will look back and they'll think, uh, "How you know? How could people be so crazy not to believe in in climate change?" Uh, and so the, the assumption is that it will be the uh, the reality of it will be so obvious that uh, no one in the future can possibly deny it. But the reality is, we are in that time already, and and people are denying it. And I would say, as it gets worse, as climate change gets worse and more integrated into our daily lives, it will be. I think we'll see more denial because you're going to have people, young younger people, growing up with no um, memory of uh, you know of what of what some people now. For instance, our, our grandparents' generation now would call normal. You know. And so I I, I don't not, I do not share the optimism of at some point climate change will be this like oh of course it's happening. I think it will settle in and catastrophe will be the order of the day and that will just be the world. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so that that's that's the only thing I think gosh has ever said that i was like mm, i'm not sure because 98 of what he says i think is spot on uh and i think we both uh you uh, know i talked about that class where we met i think that's where that's where i first heard of amitav gosh and i think he's his book specifically the great derangement uh kind of lit a fire under my ass um in a way it hadn't before, you know, I've always been, we've been intellectually aware of the issue of climate change, but something about that book makes it, um, it separates it. It's not like this is one of the problems. It's, this is the problem.
2: Yeah. And that's, um, like you're saying in that class, we read the the hungry tide Mm -hmm. and I don't think I really, and this can be the problem sometimes with, with trying to get these messages across in fiction is you might not always pick them up as strongly as you should i I like that novel fine but it didn't blow me away by any by any means but reading the great derangement and seeing him speak is is you know a whole nother uh you know ball of wax so to speak um when he's coming out and saying things in his talks like once i started they ask him why do you work on climate change why did you change because you know he was a novelist why did you shift why are you doing this different completely different kind of work now and he says, well, once I started reading about climate change, I couldn't think about anything else.
0: And I think anyone who starts thinking about climate change or writing about climate change, once you actually get to know the literature, uh, you really can't think about anything else. I mean, nothing seems of comparable importance. But even more than that, what is so powerful about this is that climate change is the Earth really. It's, it's an aspect of the agency of the Earth reinscribing itself in our brains. Uh, really tearing apart these structures of knowledge that we've built over these last 300 years. Uh, It makes us have to sort of completely rethink the foundations of the culture that we've been in and of all its products, Uh, for example, of the forms of politics that we've created, of the forms of literature, the forms of art, the forms of philosophy, the forms of thought. So it's almost like uh, once you engage with climate change, you're just unlearning uh, uh, you know, climate change and uh, the, for, uh, the forms of our minds have become so profoundly sort of uh, implicated with each other.
2: When I, you know, was lucky enough to go and see him speak at that uh, colloquium thing at Vanderbilt, um, it was, you know, really inspiring. And, and that's what I came back and told everybody. He's like, this is this is kind of life changing. Like you every- talk to him, right? Yeah, well, yeah, very What'd briefly, you say to him? very briefly. I, I remember um, you told me you like gave him a compliment. I did, and I, I don't get autographs usually. Like I'm just not into them. And, and what am I going to say to this person? I don't know them. I appreciate their work, but I don't want to be like, let's have a deep discussion about what it is. So uh, I brought the book with me, or maybe I bought it, I can't remember, but I went up and got his autograph, and he was like, oh, what's your name? And I told him, and then I said, I just want to tell you that I think this is the most important book to come out in a very long time. And, you know, he's this little old Indian guy with his white beard. Mm-hmm. And and he just kind of, like, uh, was taken aback and was like, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I was like, oh, you're welcome. And then I just walked away.
0: That's so
2: awesome. um, hopefully, like, when he thinks it reflects back on his career, he's like, oh, I think I did some good. Remember that dude I met that one time that told me my book was super important? Um, well, yeah. I think I watched... I think the talk I watched on YouTube was
1: probably similar to the one you saw live. Was that a Vandy?
2: Yes. Uh, and I assume he's just giving. He at the time he was giving a similar, if not the same, lecture. Yeah.
1: It's and the one I watched was about specifically about the Great Derangement. But my favorite part of that talk um, is when he says that intellectually we live in an extremely exciting time because through through this through climate change our knowledge of it we have hard scientific evidence that suggests it suggests the way we have been thinking about the world for thousands of years have led to imminent catastrophe and so the way we view and move about in the world Are and have been wrong, both in a religious sense, you know, in our destruction of divine creation or whatever, uh, whatever. but but also in like a rational, self-interested sense of creating an increasingly uninhabitable planet. Like, like there's no excuse for boredom right now. It's like everything we've done, all thought has led to this moment and it and it doesn't look good.
2: Um, so rearrange the chairs you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah start moving some furniture yeah um, there's a and just to kind of bring it back to Ghosh because uh, I made this kind of list of people that are very influential on our, our thinking I think and and in this whole kind of uh, environmental studies or climate change studies movement whatever you want to call it um, and Amitav Ghosh I think for both of us, is, is right up there on kind of the, the Mount Rushmore, right, to put it in those terms. But a framework he set up that I think is important for how we're going to be looking at these these films that we're going to be looking at. Doesn't it sound silly to, like, we're talking about all these big things and we're like, oh, we're going to watch movies and talk about them? <laughs> well, I, see, I th- yeah, it uh, does
1: sound silly, but but I think that's the whole point, yeah, is that these, these yeah. are the things uh, I would argue that that movies are the uh, especially now, given the rate of TV watching via Netflix and you know Amazon yeah. and all these things. These are the things that uh, inform our understanding of the world uh, more so. I think in, in a lot of cases more so than religion.
2: Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, what I forget who the thinker was. You, you might remember this, but he was writing about movie theaters being the modern cathedrals
1: oh it's uh joseph campbell
2: oh yeah joseph campbell yeah I, of course and and so now that's even moved and now it's kind of your living room your 70-inch flat screen is yep. is church <laughs> yeah um but this ghost thing I, that i was talking about um when he's talking about these moments of recognition and, and you know we've talked about this before uh, but just to sort of lay out what he's talking about a little bit and this is right at the beginning of the book uh, recognition is famously a passage from ignorance to knowledge. To recognize then is not the same thing as an initial introduction, nor does recognition require an exchange of words. More often than not we recognize mutely and to recognize is by no means to understand that which meets the eye. Comprehension need play no part in a moment of recognition. And I, I, I you know use this in classes that I teach when I'm trying to get people to think about trying to observe climate change or environmental things in a work of fiction, is you have to look at these things that might otherwise go unnoticed, right? So there's this essay um, by Elizabeth Colbert in her book, Field Notes from a Catastrophe, where they go and they they uh, she goes to this town in Alaska um, and is hanging out with this Russian permafrost expert, uh, because all the permafrost experts are Russian, apparently. And they're looking at all these sinkholes and all these like things, these roads that have been torn apart by permafrost melting and creating these sinkholes. And there's a whole street where all these houses have sunk into the ground or been broken in half. And there's just chaos, carnage. And I had my students read it, and they were talking about how that was so crazy. And I was like, "Well, does it remind you of anything?" And there's this pause for a few seconds, and then one girl kind of meekly goes, "Sounds like the end of the world." And I was like, "Exactly. It sounds like the end of the fucking world." Uh, so having those moments of recognition where you see that so, it's kind of that uncanny feeling of something's happening here, but I'm not quite sure what it is. Mm-hmm. But also kind of having that next step of now I need to interrogate it and try to figure out what's going on. Like what what more might this signify?
1: Right. And uh, the moments of recognition might be enough in, in some sense to, and Ghosh talks a lot about the political process in his book um he he's a little bit down on the uh, you know Gandhi's be the change you wish to see in the world because it's so hyper individualized um, and so it seems to me Ghosh might say that moments of recognition uh, might be enough even without carrying out your own research project you know after you pick up the kids from school and, and get home and make dinner you know all these things uh, to tip the scales in an election if we if if just those moments of recognition can happen and you understand that something is actually happening um, just that just that recognition might might go further uh, than than you might think um, Anyway, that's that's a I think that's a phrase we'll probably repeat a lot of these moments of recognition, and that might be a good transition into this idea we were talking about uh, before we started recording. The idea that we we are going to discuss uh, films um, specifically in relation to climate change, but I want to bring into the conversation the idea that. Films, I think, I think some films can have, through their narrative structures, things to say about how we order our lives and how we sort of narrativize, if that's a word, our lives, um, which, which does have uh, a relationship to environmental concerns. And so I think at some point we'll, we'll discuss films that aren't explicitly about climate change. Um, but whose narrative structures might have something worth thinking about in relation to climate change? Um, and so, just just to sort of tease that out a little bit, we were talking about the uh, the movie *Synecdoche, New York* by Charlie Kaufman, and this idea of the protagonist um, sort of almost sleepwalking through his life, or paying attention to these to these very sort of neurotic obsessions and then if you've seen the movie you know he's putting on this ridiculously absurdly big play production and so he's going about his neurotic life and then sort of realizes at one point when he's confronted by an actor who says when are we going to get an audience in here it's been 20 years that this play has just been just gotten out of hand and it's just this chaotic mess and that's and I think that that the way that that moment Of recognition, I guess you could call it, is um, the way it's filmed, the way it's structured, for us to experience that, I think is very interesting in relation to, uh, especially the the Nixon idea of slow violence and this, this accumulative effect of things accelerating, getting out of control while we go about our busy. Uh, Seemingly uh, Distant lives uh, Distant from Environmental concerns
2: Yeah And just a You know A connection to that Is that we are recording this On Oscars night Which is uh, I think a significant Coincidence (laughs) Um, You know Maybe at some point In the future We'll look at some of the films um, Involved in that ceremony Uh, Uh. for the record, I think we're both pulling for Roma. Yeah, definitely, um, we're the favorite. I like both of those. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos, up and comer. He's always good. <laughs> always good. Um, so just to uh, before we talk more about films, I just want to run through this list of relevant people real quick. Yeah, and just to uh, just touch on them real fast. But uh top Gosh, definitely Rob Nixon. Who we've already talked about the South African. Um, academic, um, who I saw speak at, the, at a conference recently, and I think his next book is about environmental martyrs, which is fascinating, and talking about how the, the there's a correlation between the rise in global temperatures and the number of environmental martyrs who are being martyred, being martyred, um, and it's all happening in what he called the environmental martyr belt, which is kind of between the tropics, as you would imagine. Uh, where all the important forests are right? Um, and then going way back to kind of the, the OGs talking about people like Rachel Carson like Aldo Leopold uh, Leo Marx maybe more specifically in relation to literature sure. writing The, the sure. Machine in the Garden um, uh, Lawrence Buell's kind of in that same vein uh, Timothy Morton who's really interesting and he's kind of I've seen him disparagingly be called hipster philosophy because mm-hmm. he invents all these kind of wacky phrases and all this weird stuff that he talks about but an idea from him that I think is relevant we're talking about is that the world already ended multiple times I think he traces traces it back to the uh, testing of the first atom bomb Mm. and says well that's the moment when the world ended that's kind of and now we're living in in the post apocalypse Um, Mm. and then uh, Wendell Berry of course he's yeah he's on my list fellow Kentuckian place in my heart Uh, taught a book of his in a class called uh, his book Our Only World and went over like you know a bag of shit (laughs) students weren't very into it Uh, but you know they they got some things out of it that were useful I think Um, Curtis White you mentioned who I am unfamiliar with but I am trying to learn more about Yeah, I'll be
1: referring a lot to his books if you haven't read them or don't know him you should Uh, The Spirit of Disobedience um we robots, and his, the one that's specifically about environmentalism is called the barbaric heart, uh, in which he says sustainability is about deal making in a moral abyss. <laughs> that's just a little. That's just oh a little. My pre- God, that's just a little preview for you. That
2: just, just all the green new deal stuff happening. Of well, we can't go that far. We can do this other thing. We can do. Uh, carbon taxes. How about carbon taxes? You liked those ten years ago. What about now?
0: Yeah, let me um,
1: find it because you're gonna. That's exactly what he's writing about. I was looking at it earlier. Um,
2: well, <laughs> <laughs> while you're looking for that, just the, yeah, keep going There are two list. people left here. One, one of them is um, maybe kind of a lesser known. Uh, figure, but an important one is uh, Andreas Malm, a I don't Swedish thinker. Uh, I think you've oh, seen his talk. Oh yeah, yeah. He's the, the angry Swede. The angry saw. Swede. Um, and I think that's important because when you see him speak, he does have this element of anger, and I think that's important, is having, uh, not just saying these things, but meaning them to the extent that you're willing to get upset about them, that you're willing to defend them, I think is important. You know, I mentioned environmental martyrs. They were willing to die for these concepts. Um, So his work, you know, the the progress of the storm is his newest book, and uh, fossil capital is his giant treatise on fossil capital. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last one, because she dips her toes in everything, is Donna Haraway. And this is, you know, not an exhaustive list by any means, but especially with her book, uh, staying in the trouble, that most staying with the trouble, her most recent book. Um, making kin in the Thule scene, which had some concepts I'm not fully into. Her whole uh, refrain of make kin not babies was kind of a a weird thing to wrap my head around. Um, (laughs) You said she repeats that over and over. Oh, yeah, (laughs) she's very into repeating phrases. Sloganeering. Uh, Yeah. Um, A lot of refrains Crooked Donna. Did you you find what you were looking (laughs) for? I did.
1: It's exactly what we're talking about. And it's not from the Barbaric Heart, it's from We Robots. This is Curtis White. At present, environmentalism is not so much a set of values as it is a menu of strategies for compromising those values, assuming they're remembered at all. Honestly, what values ground in... Honestly, what values ground any form of cap-and-trade? What values ground our commitment to the idea that global warming will be solved if we can reduce atmospheric carbon dioxide by 350 ppm? Environmentalism is about deal-making in a moral abyss. The advantage in this is that because its concessions have taken the place of its values, it is able, on occasion, to declare victory and walk away from the wreck environmentalism's greatest victory in recent years is that it has gained near universal recognition for the concept of sustainability but what exactly is sustainability sustainability is of course the good that of course is our first clue that what we are really talking about is a very successful piece of ideology when sustainability is invoked as it is persistently invoked by environmentalists the media politicians and corporations we are expected to bow down Rare is the person who dares to speak against it. Tea Party conservatives duly noted and accepted. Nevertheless, sustainability's claim to being the good is a lie. What it is, in fact, is the most recent example of moral shuffling in the West's efforts to confront the problem of our, quote, relationship to nature. The idea that we should be one with nature is rarely allowed more than a brief mention. How has this come about?
2: End quote. Just imagine, like, Starbucks telling you to buy your own reusable cup and (laughs) bring it every time. Right. Um,
1: Yeah, how can we... And remind me, when we're talking about First Reformed later, or whenever we talk about it, uh, I I think there is a brilliant moment in that movie about sustainability, Um, a, a brilliant metaphor for sustainability. We'll get to that later.
2: Though. Yeah, and that quote also kind of gets this, this sort of, when we talk about sustainability and, and ecological awareness, this kind of uh, mass apathy, which is an issue. And Ghost talks about it somewhat, uh, this idea that as a single individual, any changes I make, if I buy the reusable coffee cup, if I recycle, if I um, get an electric car, whatever it may be, even if I'm doing all the right things, it doesn't matter. You know, drop in a in a bucket right right um which is another issue is and it's related back to this idea of of the scale of the problem is people feeling like they have no real ability to affect change when it comes to these things yes uh, just to get back to the because the, you that quote mentioned the cap and trade the idea of cap and trade and i don't know if you've ever seen this but it, i find it fascinating you know joe manchin the uh, quote unquote democratic senator from west virginia Who's really, he's, he's a Republican in Democrats' clothing, even though the, not like the Democrats are necessarily good on these issues. Um, but he's been there forever, and he's been very kind of left on some things, but very right on environmental issues because West Virginia, big coal mine right, right, right. state. Um, so when the Obama administration was trying to pass their cap-and-trade bill, he uh, released an ad, or I guess maybe just a video online, of him strapping it to a tree and shooting it with a shotgun in that classic tradition of conservative yeah. lawmakers <laughs> yeah. blowing away legislation they don't agree with. Oh, uh, so that that's, that's kind of what we're up against here. And that's you know, like Curtis White is saying, it's not like that's even a radical idea, right?
1: It's interesting though, that he felt the need to create a memorable image to get his point across. Uh, yeah, sensationalism,
2: right? That's, you know what, I'm that's what but, sells.
1: am saying. But uh, uh, in one of those talks I watched by Rob Nixon, he's—I think it's the—it's the president of a small island nation.
0: Yes. Well, I, I can't remember what country can't it is. I can either,
2: but I know exactly about. But, you're but talking he stages
1: about. this photo shoot underwater.
2: Yeah.
1: To to try to raise awareness of like, hey, in 50 years this is where our country's going to be, I, I feel the, like an asshole world. because I can't
2: Yeah, remember what country I, it is. I, I want to say maybe it's the Maldives, but I can't That's remember. That sounds right. Um, maybe that's it. Anyway,
1: um, uh, I think that that says something about why it is necessary for us to critique film because like I said, there's this impulse when we want to get our points across to create memorable images and sort of tell these stories through visuals. You know, if you're the... If you're from West Virginia, it's going to be one thing, and if you're the president of the Maldives, it might be another. But I think that is a a good justification for looking at um, the ideology of films uh, just because... Why do why do we feel the need to do that? I guess I guess because the internet exists and we think we're going to reach the most people through
2: like a meme or something. Yeah, I mean, well, memes are powerful, man. Don't even get me started on gifs. Uh, <laughs> but so that that kind of leads us, I think, to the next thing we need to talk about to go over is the films we're going to discuss, or at least mm. the ones that we're considering. Sure. <clears throat> so the first one that we've kind of Unanimously decided that the first one will be first Reformed. Paul Schrader movie from from last year. Was it? Was it last year or last was year, it 2017? I maybe? can't remember if it got a 2017
1: or 18 release. Either way, it's fairly recent. We're yeah. speaking on on uh, Oscar night
2: 2019 right now. Yes, and uh, I know it was nominated for Best Picture at the Spirit Awards. Th- this Spirit Awards. Mm-hmm. So whatever that means for when it was released. Yeah,
1: but it, I don't. It didn't get any. Uh, it didn't get any Oscar, nom- Oscar nominations. I read a, a pretty funny article. Maybe you sent it to me. Maybe Corey sent it to me about how, of course, it was supposed to be nominated, but it was part of the asceticism of the, of the, of the film to deny itself any sort of worldly, <laughs> <laughs> any worldly pleasure oh, of uh, recognition and awards.
2: Yeah, whatever. Uh, so, <laughs> First Reformed will be the, the first one we're going to look at. So, that will be, you know, the next episode. We'll have a rollicking good time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Baby it. Geniuses will be the following. Baby Geniuses. To that. Uh, uh, then, uh, Boss Baby. Just ba- a lot of baby films. <laughs> yeah, Baby's Day Out. <laughs> Baby's Day Out. Uh, the, the sequel. Baby Driver Baby Pig in the City. Yeah, all ba- that stuff. Uh, babe, yeah. Uh, so, First Reformed. And then. The Babe. Uh, the Babe. And then, uh,. <laughs> We, we had some ones that, that we both kind of landed on so one of them is Mother right Darren Aronofsky's, Darren Aronofsky's Mother uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe you know his the film uh, a movie that's very divisive um, even among people that quote unquote get it might not enjoy right.
1: it yeah I think I think uh, that is a good is a great example of like a movie I think is very smart but uh ultimately pointless and and I think I think we'll when we talk about that we'll have a a very uh, good discussion about audience and the the huge issue that is audience in terms of uh, movies and and any sort of relationship to climate change a uh, sure. whole lot of you know, it, it's, either, it's either so explicit that it's meaningless, like the day after tomorrow or something like that, <laughs> or it's so implicit that, like, no one is going to see it, or it's so obscure that even if it's brilliant, it doesn't matter. Uh, so I think audience is a huge factor in, uh, in what we're talking about uh, and, and also in this podcast.
2: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the day after tomorrow because I have it on my list here as like the the granddaddy of all climate yeah. films. Yeah. Um, weirdly enough, was it Jake Gyllenhaal fighting wolves on the, the frozen tundra of New York City? Yes,
1: <laughs> and and it's something something that will inevitably come up. Also, is this idea of nature attacking? As yeah, as the enemy because. That's a perfect example of how you can sort of be right and wrong at the same time. So, so you know, day after tomorrow sort of depicts oh, humanity causes this you know this climate catastrophe, and yet they depict the catastrophe as like a separate enemy, you know, encroaching and destroying the city and so it's sort of subverting the conditions of its own plot uh, it, it makes no sense uh, and and there's a lot of movies like that i think probably the most insufferable example is uh, the happening in naishamont <laughs> the happening
2: where it's like uh, i just well, love that it, but in both in both of those cases it's nature being like you made me do this right it's like right. Frankenstein's it, monster it suffers
1: over. from the same dualism you know that 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 we've been talking about so Yeah. Um, So, and I think that's a good, a good, uh, a good segue into the a major question that I want to ask is uh, when we've talked about this question before, Matt. um, I think this is an important question, a, a sort of general question to the project of reading films for. Uh, for what they have to say about environmentalism, which is still, or, or climate change itself, which is still a very, you know, sort of countercultural issue. Uh, you know, you, there's still a, a derogatory phrase, tree-hugger. Uh, and so the question is, can a medium of art that is innately technological, that is, film, produce a work of art that effectively and or unhypocritically critiques a mainstream culture that is defined largely by its technology. Have I already said this? No. Okay. Because because we like we had the conversation before. I'm like I don't want to literally repeat myself, <laughs> but like I think I think that's an essential question. Uh, yeah. Is it possible? Is it, is it possible
2: for any movie we discuss to do what we want it to do? You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And, and just the sort of kind of meta reading of it as well is uh, not just being about a society where techno- that is mostly defined by its technology, um, but the fact that the film industry itself, it's not like it's innocent, right? It consumes a lot of resources Absolutely. Um, just to make even the cheapest, low-budget, kind of indie I remember I
1: remember watching the some sort of uh, special feature on the movie Away We Go by Sam Mendes yeah and they were talking it was like this behind the scenes thing they were trying to do a totally green production you know and I clicked on it because I thought that sounded interesting like what are they doing differently and it was just a bunch of old dudes bitching about how hard and and I don't mean like ironically bitching winking like oh we're doing the right thing they were just like yeah Sam you're talking about Sam Mendes wanted to do this and it's like fucking everything up so all that to say there is a there is tension there between like you know it's 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 a film you know the budgets are so huge because it's they're consuming you know they're producing and consuming
2: and then it gets thrown away yeah um that and then so even a film with its heart in the right place with the most radical uh, you know message on climate change that could exist is still, you know they're paying people to fly to wherever it is. they're using a lot of cars, they have generators and maybe if there's a rain scene they even waste a bunch of water in the process, right. that kind right. of thing. Um, so it's just it's one of those questions that, it's hard to get around, right? Um, but you know, it's an important one to ask. Um, and you know, can these films do what we want them to do, right? Uh, you know, I don't know.
0: It's I guess it's, we'll find out.
1: it's almost like in 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 the best case scenario, a movie like displays or like, like shows the journey of someone coming to the realization. And then like the movie ends abruptly as if to negate itself because part of the recognition in that journey is that is, is that the movie industry is complicit in all these problems. Um, so it would have to get super meta, um, and that's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, um, and just a you know, couple other movies that I was kind of spitballing. Um, We've talked a little bit about Snowpiercer, which is the opposite of Mother. There's nothing obscured in that movie. It's completely Mm ham-fisted. It's, you know, one-to-one correlation between bad guys in our world, bad guys in the film, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff about income inequality, um, or, you know, what we might call, um, in in the world of the the movie, it's the people at the back of the train, Um, and also... Uh, Okja, which is by the same director of, I haven't seen that one yet, I'd like to watch it yeah, Bong Joon-ho, I think Maybe I've messed that up um, But even though people paint Okja as being kind of an animal rights film It has that same kind of thing of Having dominion um, it Brings in questions of Genetic engineering, stuff like that um, Let's see uh, Children of Men, we talked about a little bit uh, Which is a good example Of a film that you wouldn't necessarily Think of when you're thinking of kind of films that are tackling climate change mm-hmm. but i think it's definitely there somewhat especially that feeling of living in the apocalypse yes like i was saying like the what i like about that movie so much is that they're living in this world where they basically accepted like this is the end of the human race and they're still going about their day and going to the coffee shop and going to work why would you go to work if the world's ending that mm. just um, I think
1: I think we could we could do an entire Alfonso Cuaron retrospective and come away with great things. I think Itou Mamata Mamtibian has great things to to take away about. Um, uh, you got to everything when you watch a Cuaron movie. Pay attention to what's happening in the background. There's always the the setting is always informing the the plot, like every it's it's integral to it. It's uh, every shot is intentional and contributing to every other shot. And I think I think we might get something out of his movie Gravity as well, which is uh, I, I think w- you've probably heard of uh, you know there's uh, uh, you always hear discussions of the Blue Marble, yeah the the picture. From outer space, I think uh, in, the, in the 70s or something. Yeah, not the pale blue dot.
2: Oh, different thing. Uh, okay.
1: The blue marble is just the picture of Earth that a lot of people say sort of sparked environmentalism. Oh, uh, okay. From I think it was from the 70s, the satellite took, and uh, you know the the narrative goes, oh, we saw how frail we saw what a pale blue dot we were, and how frail and small, and therefore we realized we needed to take. Care of it, but there's a, a lot of people who are very critical of this idea, saying it just abstracted the earth, um, and and what we need is a more grounded, local. Obviously, Wendell Berry talks about like, um, you know, sort of rooting yourself in in that which is closest to you uh, in terms of your environmental concerns. But uh, I think gravity is very interesting because it starts in space most space movies don't start in space and it's and it is a it's and I'm thinking about this because another movie on this list is Interstellar and it's the exact opposite where you start on the earth and the goal is to escape it into space and gravity is the exact opposite and it says we are and of course there's a lot of metaphors you know in this movie but we start in space, and the goal is to get back to Earth, and and the final shot of gravity is yes. her, it's uh, her bare feet in the sand and the in like a jungle type. Yes, setting. yes, which you know
2: how she didn't hit water is kind of always something that stuck with me. It's like you're gonna hit the Earth but miss all the water somehow.
1: Well, she she lands in water. Yeah, but it's like a pond or right, something. Right, right.
2: Like it, yeah, um, but yeah, just that scene of. Literally coming back, and where does she end up? In kind of the heart of nature, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm glad you mentioned kind of planetary concerns because uh, the last one I wrote down on here, just uh, that came to me, was Melancholia. <laughs> That's a great. <laughs> as far as talking about like end of the world, apocalyptic yes. type, and there's a great themes. there's a great
1: reading of Melancholia in this book that I just read from by Curtis White, um, and it's about. His take on it is about the role of play, uh, and it's sort of about not succumbing to reality. Uh, <laughs> yes. And he, somewhere in this book, he says the depressed person is the ultimate realist, and and so uh, Kirsten Dunst's character is is the realist, but it's only you see at the end, you know, with the with the planet ending, the world ending. She's the only one that can handle it because she can, uh, she sort of gets out of that. You know, the only time she's tolerable is at the end because she realizes she has to pretend. You know, they build that little hut yeah. and they've got the magic sticks. Uh, and so you have to pretend, but you have to know you're pretending. And that's sort of what a, that is Curtis White's point about the romantics is that the romantics knew they were pretending. The, the in, in sort of enlightenment-based philosophers don't know that they're pretending. Um, anyway, that's yeah, sort of off track. But
2: melancholia, yes. No, I think that, that makes a lot of sense. And we were talking earlier about, um, I think you were saying something about nature and wilderness and these things are kind of stories that we tell. They're yeah. concepts that we create. And what's the ultimate concept we create? Reality, right? Sure. Reality's not real, right? So <laughs> deep, bro. <laughs> so uh if you have this idea and, and plenty of people write about the concept of, of play as being important, right? That animals play as a, a means to do a lot of things, but one of them is to just kinda get outside of kind of crushing weight of how heavy things can become when you try to be quote unquote Realist about the world, right? right? So you know, this we're talking about serious things. Are we still going to make like dick joke every now and then? Yeah, definitely, probably. <laughs> but um, there has to be some sort of essence of play, or else why even be alive? I guess. Um, yeah, and that's that's a great
1: uh, that's a great point because one sort of very general question that I think. That underlies any discussion like this is like why at first reform sort of hints at this the the idea is like why is climate change bad you know what I'm saying like we're just we're we're making a lot of assumptions about ethics and morality um, and I think there's this is an idea, again, coming from a different Curtis White book, The Spirit of Disobedience, uh, where he he's talking about Marx. And he basically says Marx assumes uh, what he's trying to prove, that, you know, oh, it's this terrible thing to exploit labor. But what he says is that Marx could never explain why exploiting a human being was a bad thing because he just throws the the baby out with the bathwater in terms of religion. Here's a, a more elegant statement of that. Uh, he says, uh, Marx could not have, or similarly for Marx, he could not have provided an ethical foundation to his critique of capitalism without revealing that he was, like Kant, far more dependent on Christian ethics than he himself understood. Um, As John Ruskin might have chided Marx, the laws that regulate the possession of wealth are unjust, but no socialism can affect their abrogation unless it can abrogate covetousness and pride. In other words, for Ruskin, there is an expressly spiritual problem at the heart of political economy. Uh, he He goes on to say, Capitalism cannot stop exploiting people as instruments of gain without becoming something other than capitalism. Later, he says the church, of course, knows exactly why treating people as instruments of any kind is wrong. It has been revealed through the sacrifice in the historical ministry of Jesus. Marx could not answer the question, why is capitalism bad? Um, at its deepest levels, Marxism does assume that capitalism is cruel, that exploitation is wrong, and that compassion for the suffering of people living under capitalism is the most important reason for revolution. The great strategic error of Marxism was to imagine that it could achieve social justice through a mechanical understanding of the necessary laws of dialectical materialism. He says, uh, he's sort of summarizing the Marxist dogma and criticizing in, in a critical way. He says the Marxist dogma is essentially, Capitalism must inevitably fall to the iron laws of its own internal contradictions. Um or this is what the Marxist theorists argued. Uh, Marxism was wrong to think that it had created a science, far less a natural science, and it was wrong to think that its hatred for the institution of the church required a hatred of spirituality as such. That's the uh, end quote. But the point is, with I think the same is true of environmentalism. What sort of ethical framework do we have for saying it is wrong to use the planet in an irresponsible way. What is irresponsible? Irresponsible to who? Um, and, and like I said, I think First Reform kind of gets at this where there I can't remember if it's the uh, Cedric the Entertainer's character or the corporate CEO guy who says, basically, climate change might be part of God's plan.
2: Um, you know what I'm saying? Which is a, a pretty common... Refrain, I would say. Um, and maybe the craziest position to have. Yeah. <laughs> you, this, know? you know, this is a test. Right. Um, we have to just accept it, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, it happens a lot when they're like, I, I remember watching maybe it was a Vice piece a few years ago um, where they, they were in Texas and during a massive drought and they were talking to people and they interviewed a range of people, older people, even like teenagers in the community just you know, tearing ass around the country in their pickup truck. Hell yeah. Um, And asking them about the drought. And I remember there was this teenager kind of leaning against his truck with his boots on and he says, well, you know, it's just part of God's plan. It's just, you know, we just have to to pray real hard on it and see what happens. Yeah, just Um, like this Chevy
1: was a part of God's plan.
2: Yeah, and it's like that old story. It's kind of a, I guess it's kind of like a church joke where there's a guy who, He's in his house, and he's uh, there's a hurricane coming, and they come and say, "Hey, you have to leave." There's a hurricane coming, I know right? I love this And show, so he yeah. he he turns down leaving, and then you know there's a the police come to get him. He says no, and then a boat comes to pick him up, and he says no, and then a helicopter comes, He says no. God will protect me. Dies, gets to heaven, asks God why he didn't do anything, and God said, "What are you talking about? I sent the cops, and I sent a boat, and I sent a helicopter." Um, this is fact that at some point you have to have some sort of agency. In well, your spirituality, well,
1: and it's and it's that I think the essence of that joke is that the the um, abstract concepts you you learn through religious dogma have to be enacted in life. Like there has to be some sort of overlap. It's not just something you read about in the Bible on Sundays. It's like it should inform the practical, boring stuff of your life, like you know the idea is that salvation gets worked out through policemen and helicopters and very you know <laughs> yes. practical realities it's not some some supernatural thing yeah you know to to quote, to, cl- but to clarify i do not think salvation gets worked out through police officers
2: <laughs> no, no yeah let's let's admit that in the most <laughs> that, right that was just um, a,
1: uh, an example that matt used in the joke <laughs>
2: Yeah, we just start. We get real blue lives mattery out of nowhere. <laughs> hard, hard right turn. Um, so, well, and you know, like the point you're making that there has to be some sort of practical implication for these things. And uh, to quote my father-in-law, who would say, "Religion is how you treat other people, right?" So there's that kind of thing that there's there's agency and there's kind of practical action, right? Practical magic. That's a movie we could watch. Um, <laughs> I think we should
1: rename the podcast.
2: <laughs> when you were talking practical about... practical Mar- magic with Matt and Will, <laughs> when you were talking about Marxist dogma, I was like, we should make a dogma joke. That's a we could watch dogma for a- Kevin Smith's Marxist dogma. <laughs> yeah, a lot of climate change and this Kevin Smith uh, sacrilegious. Concept. Anyway, uh, to to get back to. The film. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah. List of movies we might. List of movies, yeah. And I kind of, I've exhausted the the quick list I've jotted down. But um, something you brought up a while ago was looking at films that you wouldn't necessarily think of as being climate change related. Mm -hmm. Um, So that could be something as ubiquitous as the road trip movie. Not just road trip, but road trip movies in general. And the fact that that's based on this. Carbon ideology Right Of the the car As your way to freedom or Right Or to get it, the girl back It has everything. such It
1: has such a Sort of Americana feel Absolutely But it's yeah. like That's I mean What is a car But a You know <laughs>
2: Technology
1: of the 20th century Like
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um
2: and then also like disaster movies right so the nature being the enemy even if it's or space being the enemy if you're talking about like deep impact or something like that Um, but a a big one that I think we'll have to touch on at some point and this comes from Ghosh's thinking especially in that talk and and, in the great derangement is looking at uh, war films specifically I think post 9-11 war films would be helpful in thinking about it because as Ghosh repeats every time I've seen him speak, basically is that the military is the largest, you know, consumer, the largest polluter um, in the world, right? The U.S. military has this enormous budget, all these vehicles, all this right. um, technological capability, all that kind of stuff. Um, so maybe looking at something like Jarhead, which is you know about the first Gulf War, and you see oil derricks burning, right? And that's a big part of the plot um a big part of the plot in real life since it occurred in uh, during the first Gulf for um but looking at those kinds of films and and kind of not just looking necessarily at their environmental impact but how that's never even a consideration that is taken up really um so yeah uh some another movie that just hit me and thinking about my
1: question of you know can a can a countercultural movie even exist in a culture defined by technology? Uh, Avatar, <laughs> which you know, which takes the sort of Pocahontas story and puts it in this just preposterously big movie. In this uh, is it. Is it the most expensive movie ever made? I don't know. It was at the time. I don't know. Yeah. if it Still I is. I mean, though. by any standard though it is an extremely expensive movie a a product of technological innovation and industry and and yet here's this mess I, and I remember like the advertising was like you know that tie-ins with like McDonald's and Walmart and all these <laughs> yeah. and it's like here, yeah here's this message about reverence for nature are you yeah. fucking kidding me like um, but in, in, in a sort of uh, big picture kind of Discussion of of, uh, of uh, the movie industry Avatar might be a good conversation yeah. starter.
2: And interestingly enough, I think the most expensive movie uh, before that, unless it changed, but in between, was Waterworld. <laughs> <laughs> so you know maybe one we could look at which I remember that as a kid, hearing the premise, it's like oh the ice caps melted so the entire world's underwater and thinking that's terrifying. Well, you know that's impossible. Um, but the fact that that was kind of where we as a culture were with our understanding of right. what something like that would even look like. I heard, uh, I watched the
1: new, newest Dimitri Martin stand up, and he said the uh, polar ice caps are getting smaller. And uh, uh, I forget how he puts it, but they are now the polar ice yarmulkes. <laughs> God.
2: Yeah, that sounds like a Dimitri <laughs> It is, Yeah, it's brilliant. You're right. But yeah, uh, looking at uh, stuff like that it could be. It, I wrote down as you were talking the tree hugger. I was like, why not just make it tree fucker? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's why go stop whole, with hugging. Yeah, let's go whole hog. And the fact that that's an insult, right? Hey, yeah, I love, I love the fact that tree hugger
1: is an insult, and I love the fact that bleeding heart is an insult. It's like. Oh, your your concern for nature and others is is what I
2: hate about you. Yeah, and the <laughs> the social justice warrior. Yeah, which why if you if you are disparaging them and you think they're so so stupid, why would you give them such a badass name? Yeah, you know? that's what I never really understood. Um. So yeah, I mean, we're coming up on looks like an hour and a half, something like that. Yeah, um, I think
1: so. I, I think our our theoretical sort of underpinnings are probably clear. Um, I guess we can just go ahead and probably agree that the first film we, we do on the next episode will be first reformed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good jumping off point to get into a lot of the nitty gritty stuff that we kind of teased out here.
2: Yeah. And to just sort of, I'm going to indulge myself and talking about this uh this concept that comes from donna Haraway when she was talking about um autopoiesis versus simple and the, the important thing to know is that autopoiesis is self-making simple is making together and she had this quote and i think it's a good kind of uh idea to end on um and it was just it stuck out to me when i was listening to the audiobook because uh, i'm fancy like that where she said Or she wrote we become together or not at all and I think that's a good kind of idea to keep in mind so we have these you know this running list of slogans rearrange the chairs we become together or not at all yes Um, but there has to be you know this isn't a problem for one geographical area or you know a specific group of people this is a humankind issue Um, so our job is to see how that's coming out in these films in these cultural productions sure. which it inevitably is yes
1: and even if it isn't explicit which is sort of our point about reading movies not explicitly about climate change it's revealing it's revealing ourselves to ourselves uh, either through what we talk about or through what we do not talk about what we leave out
2: um so, I'm looking forward to it. No, yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I look forward to watching First Reformed again. Uh, it's a very thorough mindfuck of a film in a lot of ways, uh, but in a, in a good way. Yeah, I'm uh, going to so watch the. I've
1: seen it. I've seen it enough. I've seen it like <laughs> three times. I'm going to watch the
2: uh, Paul Schrader commentary uh, on, yeah, the, that'd be on good. the on the DVD. Yeah, because again, not probably not someone you would assume would make that film. Out of nowhere, so yeah, it's out of nowhere. Looking at why that is and why people are, you know, feel the need to take up this cause. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's that's episode one in the can, baby. Uh, So insert ass joke. (laughs) So we'll uh, be back with First Reformed next time. All right. So uh, signing off. Signing off. We'll we'll end with the Philip Larkin quote. Be careful of each other while there's still time. Booyah. (laughs) That was actually Stuart Scott. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Booyah. Stuart Scott.
0: (laughs) Peace.